This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're going to talk about smart credit card use. Blair, the do's and the don'ts. Easy, easy do's and don'ts to help you use your credit card, possibly better than you already are. So there's no doubt that credit cards are pretty common, pretty convenient, but a few missteps can easily turn a basic balance into a major financial burden. So debt help expert Blair Manton is going to share his credit card use best practices and easy tips to help keep your balance from becoming a debt problem. So I know, Blair, in your work, you've seen far more credit card bills than the average person. Where do you want to start today talking about credit card do's and don'ts? Well, you're completely right, Elaine, in that I can't think of maybe more than five estates in the thousands that I've seen where there hasn't been at least some credit card usage. You know, sometimes it's not the dominant factor, but, you know, it is the fact that credit cards are, you know, a basic component of most people's financial life, whether it's for convenience, whether it's, you know, to get some rewards. Uh, a lot of people do find themselves, you know, using credit cards quite a bit. And there's really nothing inherently wrong with using a credit card. In some situations, they're useful, they're convenient. As I said, sometimes there's some good rewards and perks that you know might seem more attractive than they actually are, and we're going to get to those. Um, but you really need to understand how credit works and what the rules are. And you know, when it comes to financial literacy, it's a skill like any other. It's something that you need to learn. You don't automatically just know everything, and you need some practice, sometimes making some mistakes along the way, some good sources of knowledge to really get you to the point where you are a savvy and well-informed consumer. And you know, that's what we're really hoping to do today. So I thought you know, off the top, I wanted to set the stage a little bit in terms of the types of credit cards that most people tend to, to gravitate towards, and then we can talk about some good do's and don'ts. So in terms of the major types of credit cards, you know, the typical credit card that you'll see most often, uh, it's called an unsecured credit card. Most of the time it's just called a typical credit card. And you always want to check the, the terms and conditions before you're taking out a new credit card. Understand are there fees, annual or otherwise? Uh, what are their transaction fees, ATM fees? Are there rewards and bonuses? And then probably the biggest cost that you're going to pay, unless you're paying the card off every month, which is a best practice, but anyway, uh, is what is the interest rate? So a typical credit card, you really want to understand all of those factors. Now, there's a couple other types of credit cards, again, just kind of setting the stage of what we're talking about here. Um, a prepaid credit card, it's sometimes called a reloadable or a pay-as-you-go card, and that's where you put you know, a deposit on the card, and you can basically use it until that balance goes away. You can get a prepaid card with no credit score or a low credit score, and it doesn't do anything to help your credit history, but it is good for convenience. And the final type of the three, so there's the standard credit card, there's a prepaid paid card. And then there's a type of card which is not really as well known, but it's called the secured credit card. And that's similar to a standard credit card. You know, it works everywhere, um, but you put an initial deposit down, similar to a prepaid card. But in this case, it actually does report on your credit bureau. It's going to help you rebuild your credit. So a lot of the time, a secured card is a great choice for people over a prepaid card. 
Okay. Now, you kind of let it slip earlier that you think it's the, the best idea is to always pay off your credit card at the end of every month. So I know that you've got a whole list of really good do's, and I bet that that's one of them. And then, of course, the dreaded don't do this with your credit card. Well, and that's the number one rule, Elaine. You can call it the golden rule of using a credit card is make sure you've got the cash to pay it off at the end of the month. Um, you know, there sometimes might be a good reason why even if you have the cash, you'll use the card, whether it's for convenience, maybe it's for safety, maybe there's some recurring purchases or online purchases. But the key thing to avoid this pylon of interest, which you'd be amazed how quickly your credit card balance can grow at 20 or even 30% interest, um, you just need to make sure you've got the money aside. So the best practice for a credit card is to make sure you're paying the balance in full uh, on a monthly basis. And if you do that, you're not going to be paying any interest charges. Um, and most credit cards typically have either a very low or a zero annual fee. Um, so if you really take the time ahead of time to make sure if you're using your credit card for a purchase that you do have the cash to pay it off, um, you know, that's far and away the number one do with a credit card. But even something to consider is if you do have the cash, sometimes there's a behavioral or psychological aspect of if you're actually parting with the cash, you might be a little bit more careful with your spending because there's a physical pain of opening up your wallet, of taking out the different colored bills. Oh my gosh, the brown bill is $100. My gosh, that's different than putting down, you know, a credit card where everything's a little bit, you know, nebulous. It's less tied to something tactile and physical. So it's not the case you use credit for everything always. Sometimes using cash makes good sense. But if you are going to use credit, make sure you've got the money to pay it off far and away. That's the number one tip. Number one tip. So I just want to throw this in at this point, Blair, that if if there's a listener that already knows deep down inside that it's time to get some help with finances or your debt problem, I want to just reinforce, give Sands and Associates a call. Uh, the phone number, 1-800-661-3030. You can set up that first appointment and get started. So can we talk about the do's and don'ts you can offer for dealing with a credit card balance? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think just before we get, we get to there, Lane, I just wanted to touch a little bit on another don't here because I think this is a little bit of a, of a pitfall. Um, and sometimes people are thinking, you know, I'm going to use my credit card for all sorts of transactions, but there's three in particular that cause you to really incur charges really upfront. So be careful if you're taking any cash advances or credit card checks. Oftentimes, there's a, a fee right off the top of those. Uh, be careful if you're doing a wire transfer or a money order. And then finally, and I would hope people aren't doing this, but if you're putting lottery tickets or other gaming transactions on your credit card, be aware they're charged interest right away. So those types of transactions really want to flag for folks to, to be careful with those. Oh, oh boy, I didn't realize that that comes up right away. There's no, there's no grace period like there is with other purchases with your credit card. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly the point, Elaine. So if we go out and go to Hudson's Bay after work and buy, you know, a new blanket for the bed or something, I've got 21 days at least of interest-free grace period. I'm going to pay it off. It's fine. I paid no interest. But if I go out and go to the ATM before then and get the exact same amount of money to take to Hudson's Bay, but I took it from my credit card, I'm going to be charged that probably a minimum 20% interest on that from the day that I've took it out. There's no interest-free period. And I'm probably going to end up paying that interest for a couple months because by the time I get the bill, it's only going to have some interest on it. There's going to be some accumulating to the following month. So it gets you into a cycle you don't want to be in. And I know we just sort of glossed over, didn't even touch yet on the benefits part that credit card companies can offer. Do we pay attention to that reward system or the benefits or should we just discount that altogether? 
Well, I think you want to be careful and understand that it's an enticement to get your business, but I've done the math, and in general, the best rewards programs, they're going to give you about 1% of what you spend back, whether it's cash back or airline points or something like that. Maybe you get it up to one and a quarter or one and a half percent, but if you're spending money to get the rewards points and you're not paying off the balance, your interest charges alone for one month are probably one and a half percent easy. If you carry it for two or three months, you very quickly eclipse any of the benefits you're going to get from that credit card. So I find the rewards... You want to be very careful about them. Again, there can be a good strategy. Charge things on the card, pay it off every month, get the rewards points. But quite often, I find people build up a balance. They've got these rewards points, but then they've got an interest charge that well exceeds any value they might have gotten. That's fair enough. That's a really good point. Okay, so now let's talk about the credit card balance. What are some do's yeah. and don'ts around, around that? Well, I think the first one is just to be aware and be, and be proactive. You know, just keep your eyes open and keep track of your account balances, your purchases, and your payments. And you've got to treat all your accounts as important. So don't skip any payments. Don't regularly rotate. I'm going to skip this one this month and pay it the next month. Uh, you need to understand any missed payments at all can impact your credit score, no matter how big or how small. Um, and sometimes you missing payments can actually trigger penalties, can trigger higher interest rates. So really make sure you're keeping on top of things and talk to your lender right away if you think you're not going to be able to make a payment as required. You know, we've seen in the last, you know, 19, 20 months, lenders have been very flexible as people have went through very tough times with the pandemic. Um, can't say that's always going to be the case, but it's definitely worthwhile to be proactive if you know you can't make a payment as scheduled. Now, I know the next thing we want to talk about are the fees or the fee structures. And boy, I find it, that's part of that 18 pages of information you get when you get your credit card, isn't it? Well, and it's, it's so interesting, Elaine, too, because I've often said, you know, the harder something is pushed on you by the salesperson, it's often the better it is for you and the worse it is for them. And the number one thing I tell people to watch out for on fees is balance protection insurance. I've never had a single client, and I deal with people where they've lost their job, they've gotten sick or something like that, where that insurance has actually paid out and done good, and they've gotten some value from it. I've had a ton of clients who, when I look at their bill, I'm like, do you realize you're paying 40 50 80 $100 some month for this balance protection insurance that probably won't pay out? Uh, and they just had no idea. It was just sold to them as a very good idea, a good way to protect yourself. So be very careful on balance protection insurance. My advice is almost always to say no to it. Um, be aware you'll be charged a fee if you take a cash advance on your card. Sometimes it's nominal, sometimes it's ATM fees plus a certain amount. Uh, be aware there could be over-limit fees. You know, if you're if your credit grantor thinks, you know, they're doing you a favor by allowing you to exceed your limit, they might also tack a 40 or $50 charge on it because you did exceed your limit. Um, and then finally, make sure if you're using your card out of country, you realize there's currency conversion, but there's often charge an extra premium on top of that that can make it a little bit of a worse deal sometimes than going and exchanging your money. So be very aware of the fees. Oftentimes, the amount that credit card companies make from fees is very close or can exceed the amount they make from interest charges. And what do you tell the person who says, look, I pay that minimum payment box every time I get my credit card statement. I can't figure out why I can't get ahead a on this thing like I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. Mm -hmm. I say you're at the number one warning sign of someone who's going to have financial problems is if you're only able to make your minimum payments, you're trapped in a cycle of debt that could be, you know, even for $5,000 at 18%, that's almost 20 years to pay it off. And, you know, the balances can go up from there. So I'd say to that person, look at your credit card statement. It's not, it might not be as easy as you'd like to find it. But by law, there is a disclosure there that says if you only make the minimum payments, it's going to take you X number of years to get out of debt. Um, and if you really want 
want to educate yourself, if you look back at your cardholder agreement and look at how that minimum payment is calculated, I remember when I looked at it for my card and I was like, no, I must be reading this wrong. It's I'm going to pay the interest for the month, uh, any charges or fees for the month, and $10, literally $10. It didn't matter what my balance was. I was paying interest, fees, and $10 each month was going to bring down my balance if all I was doing was the minimum payment. So that's why it's the 20 or 40 or 100-year cycle is minimum payments contribute very, very little to actually reducing your balance. In my mind, they're designed to preserve as long as possible the amount of time you will be making those payments. Got it. So we just got a minute left, um, Blair, and I think this is so important why a licensed insolvency trustee like yourself, number one person to go see if you've got credit card debt issues. Well, that's absolutely right, Elaine. And a lot of folks I deal with, you know, they're determined they're going to get out of this under their own steam. They feel personal responsibility or they feel embarrassed to reach out for help. You know, the best thing I can say is everybody I meet with feel happy that they've at least had the conversation. They're allowed to get some questions answered. They're allowed to put some, you know, structure to something that seems a little bit out there. They don't know all the rules and responsibilities. It's a confidential one-on-one consultation. You can make some informed decisions. And we guarantee it's without judgment. It's with empathy. We're just real people trying to help real people people in tough situations. Yeah, and you're not alone in this because this is this is an issue for folks, especially uh, during tough times or, or this crazy pandemic that we're all living through. So if you're ready to get a debt-free plan in place, book your free confidential debt consultation with a caring, and I mean it, caring Sands & Associates debt help expert. Visit sands-trustee.com or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm going to talk about seven facts. He's boiled it down to seven facts, folks, all about debt you probably didn't know. So if you were faced with a debt problem, would you know all your legal rights, options, and remedies? A lot of consumers, not obvious just how complex debt can be until facing the uncertainty of how to deal with it. So Blair's going to highlight the importance of seeking qualified support, sharing some facts about debt issues that maybe you don't know all about. We've talked before, Blair, about the uh, the Sands catchphrase, knowing is not owing. So can you start us off with some debt facts that really highlight this for folks and, and maybe they haven't heard before? Oh, certainly. I'm excited for today's um, segment as well, because I'm sure there's more than seven key things, but these are probably the top seven that I see people coming in consistently in consultations where, you know, we're really happy to educate, and, you know, the more that we can get the word out to others who might not even need to see us for a consultation, but just need to know this in their life, you know, that that's success to me. So one thing that I often get, get asked about is, you know, sometimes it's a family going through a very tough situation, and they think that their personal debts might turn into a family issue if they're not able to pay all their debts off as they had planned, or if they pass away. So essentially the question of can you inherit debt? We get tons of calls on that all the time and sometimes it's after people have already taken some steps to say, well I know I'm going to inherit this debt anyway so I've liquidated this asset or that. Was that the right thing to do? And the first thing we're going to say out of the seven today is that relationships alone, family relationships, uh, they do not automatically create responsibility for debt. So a family does not inherit a personal liability for paying your debt just because they're related to you. Uh, If you have an unpaid debt debt when you pass on, your creditor can try to make a claim on your estate. So if there is, you know, um, some asset that you had when you passed on, yes, those assets have the right to be sold to pay debts. But if there's no assets in your estate, there's nobody else that can be held responsible for that. Now, the exception to this is if there is a co-signer, a co-borrower, uh, 
joint type of an account, you know, that's where things could have some shared liability. But for the most part, if someone has some debt and they pass on, unless it was a jointly held debt when they were alive, it, there's no way that it suddenly becomes a joint debt when they had passed on. Okay, and that includes spouses too? Yeah, that's a good point to add there, Elaine. So yeah, it a lot of people think if you marry somebody, you marry their debt. And we've talked about this for a number of segments in the past, but it's completely false. You don't marry someone's debt. And it's not the case that if someone had a significant debt, you know, say a husband owes a huge student loan, the government can't suddenly come to the wife and say, well, now you're married. I need you to start paying this student loan. So the debts remain separate, even though you're married. Now, again, there is a, a difference. If you start getting joint debts together, you start borrowing things together. Of course, that's, you know, the obligation of both of you. But strictly speaking, each person's debts are their own debts, even if they're married. Okay. And you mentioned it, you mentioned a, about a joint debt. Uh, and I think it's always so important to talk about co-signing because often that's the first thing that folks suggest they do to help somebody in their family mm-hmm. or a close friend. And you are not a fan of that process. No, in uh, my book I wrote a few years ago, uh, there's a big page that says, when is it wise to co-sign a debt? Almost never. I've heard very few situations where it is wise. You know, maybe okay, it's a small student loan for the last semester of school. You know you've got the job already lined up. You'll be able to pay it back and you need your parents to co-sign. That was my example, and it worked out. But uh, for the most part, uh, when you co-sign a debt, most people don't think about the eventuality. If that original borrower can't pay it off, they're going to be on the hook for 100% of that debt. Um, you know, most people think if you're co-signing a debt, at most it's 50-50 liability or, you know, first they have to go and really chase that person down and make sure they can't get anything. No, if there's a default in that agreement, um, they can come to all of the borrowers for full payment. It's called joint and several liability. And there could be credit rating impacts on that as well. If the account's not getting paid on, on as according to plan and you're just the co-signer, it could be reporting on your credit as well. The payments aren't getting made. So I've seen situations where people have so regretted co-signing a debt because then when they need to deal with their debt situation, they're leaving the co-signer in a very tough financial situation. So I generally recommend against getting a co-signer for any debts or being a co-signer. I also recommend the exercise caution if you're getting a supplementary card on a credit card account. Really look at the cardholder agreement and make sure you're not signing on to be responsible for any previous balances or any purchases that you don't make. In some cases, you are signing on for both of those responsibilities. I want to throw in here, too, that if you already know that you need to take some action and you need to get some help uh, with to, to solve your debt issue, give Sands & Associates a call. The phone number, again, is 1-800-661-3030 or check the website sands-trustee.com. So, Blair, um, are there some further debt facts about what you can uh, or what can and can't happen if you don't pay a debt that you want to include? Oh, for sure. There's a few here, Elaine. And the first one is one that can really, really impact someone in a serious way if they're not anticipating this. It's called the right of offset. And what this is in simple terms, it's the right of a bank or another financial institution to recover money owed to them for an outstanding debt. So to basically get their debt paid back by taking money you have on deposit with them or an affiliated bank to pay the debt. So what it typically means is that if you've got a credit card at, you know, pick a bank, and you also have your daily banking relationship there, it might be the day after you've deposited your paycheck and you're expecting to pay the rent the following day, your account's been swept clean because you've got a delinquent account balance and the bank just got tired of saying, hey, you're late on this payment, so on and so forth. We're within our rights to go into your account and basically clean it out uh, if that's enough to satisfy the debt. 
So it can happen at the worst possible time, uh, and your bank could withdraw all the money in the account and leave you literally with nothing, and then your next payments, you know, your NSFs or your uh, regular preauthorized payments, they might not be able to be funded, and then you're dealing with NSF charges like for $50 a time. You can imagine insult to injury at that point. So the way that you deal with the right of offset is to not put yourself in that situation. So many banks, as you'll notice if you look at their marketing, everything under one umbrella, you know, we can do everything under the sun, and that gives them the ability, if you're borrowing from them, to come and take your assets without having to do anything. They can literally push a button within the bank, and that's about it. If you separate your borrowing and your daily banking, so wherever you put your paycheck in, you just don't have any credit relationship with them, you've frustrated that right of offset forever. That bank that you owe debt from, they could never go to another institution and suddenly take your money. They would have to do a whole legal process. It would take months. You'd see it coming a mile away. So it's the best practice for everybody just to not borrow where you do your daily banking. Such a, such a good piece of advice. Um, what about the time that a creditor has to collect their debt? Does that ever expire or does it just keep going on and on and on? Well, that's a big one too, Elaine, that a lot of people don't realize. There is a time limit. There is a statute of limitations, so to speak. It's called the BC Limitation Act, and it limits the amount of time creditors have to take action to force you, which means to sue you, for a debt that's open. And in BC, it's as little as two years. So it changed a number of years ago. It used to be six years. If you owe somebody money, they can threaten to sue you, you know, for six years. It changed a number of years ago. It's now two years. And the way that it's measured is two years after the date the debt was incurred, the date the last payment against it was made, or the date the last written acknowledgement of the debt by the person who owes the money, including an email, was made. So if two years have passed and you have not made a payment on the debt, you have not acknowledged the debt in writing, and nobody has taken legal action against you, um, this debt can become uncollectible. And what that means is that you could never legally be forced to pay this debt. If they tried to take you to court, your defense would be one sentence and it would be irrefutable. You'd say, BC Limitations Act, it's beyond two years, therefore they've got no right to do this and you would win. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't owe the money anymore. So just because the limitation period has elapsed, it means they don't have the legal right to force you to pay the debt, but they can do other things to you. They can still call you. They can still harass you. They can still threaten you as much as the threats might be empty. They still might be made, and that can cause you some stress. Um, So the debt doesn't go away, but realistically, your risk towards the debt is significantly lower once the two-year limitation period has passed. So well, a couple things. You've got to be careful about making small payments because, you know, if you're 1.9 years into that limitation period and you make, you know, a $10 payment on that debt, you know, a good faith payment or whatever, you've now reset that clock back to zero and the two years starts again. And the second point here is to realize not all debts have limitation periods. Any amounts owing to the government, there's no limitation period for income tax or student loans or anything like that. So it is, and you know, things like alimony or maintenance, no limitations on those, but your typical consumer debts, there is a standard two-year limitation period. Okay, that's really important, especially that whole if you've had any correspondence with the with the uh, with the with the uh, person who's who who you're owing. I think that's fascinating. Well, yeah, sometimes your best bet is just to go silent. You know, if you know you can't pay the debt, it's not going to help you to pay $10 a month. You're never going to hit the limitations period. And sometimes saying nothing means that you're not going to incriminate yourself or not going to reset that that clock. So sometimes that can be a good action. And we'll give you advice on that if that's your best course. Now, you've got a nice segment here about Canada Revenue, uh, their agency debt collection. Uh, How does that work? Because I bet that's a little bit different than others. 
Yeah, the key takeaway there that people might not be aware of is, you know, some people are aware, hey, you've got to be sued for a debt before, you know, it can really have an impact against you before your wages can be seized, before any assets can be taken from you. There needs to be a court action against you. You know, sometimes when people are made aware of that, they're like, okay, so when people are threatening, they can do something overnight. It just can't happen. The exception to that is Canada Revenue Agency. Because they are the government, uh, they don't have to go to court. They don't have to get an order. If you're delinquent on taxes, if you've been non-compliant, they can implement some pretty severe remedies just about overnight. Now, typically, it's not their first step. They're going to try to work with you, call you, you know, try to get you on board or try to get you to work with a trustee to restructure the debt. Um, But if none of that works, they can do a wage or a bank account seizure very quickly. They can even place a lien on your personal property, start to seize assets from you. So with CRA, just be aware they can shortcut uh, other collection uh, avenues that other collectors would have to follow. And of course, at the end of the day, if you if you don't want to go or pay attention to all to any of those things that we've already talked about, and you just want to deal with your debt, and that that's when I come and see you, and and you've got some options for me. Well, exactly. So the best option that I always say people have never heard about, and hopefully more and more people are hearing about it, is the consumer proposal. So it allows you to consolidate your debts without borrowing, but also get those debts forgiven down to what you can actually afford. So quite often it's in the range of 30 to 50 cents in the dollar, maybe it's 25, 35, depending on the situation. But it can literally be somebody who owes $30,000 of debt with massive minimum payments, interest accumulating every month. It could be we reduce that down to, say, $9,000 of debt, you know, just under a third of the total, and they pay nothing extra on top of that. It's a payment they can afford based on their income, and they've avoided the bankruptcy proceeding, avoided getting caught in minimum payment traps for the next you know, 15 or 20 years. So a consumer proposal is incredibly powerful. It's something everyone needs to be aware of if you find yourself in a situation where you're just trapped making minimum payments and you know it's going to take you a very long time to pay off the debt. I also, uh, if, if you're being hounded by uh, creditors and collection agencies, a consumer re- proposal uh, would shut all of that down as well. Yep, dead in its tracks. As soon as you've signed, the trustee is appointed like a referee. You only deal with the trustee. You get protection from all of your creditors. That should be the number one reason that you would give Sands & Associates a call. As well, you can learn more about consumer proposals, debt consolidation, personal bankruptcy. Uh, you can explore all the different options if now is the time to take some action uh, to, to look after your debt situation. You can get your debt consultation with Sands & Associates easily. Appointments are available in person or remotely. Visit their website site, uh, sands-trustee.com, and give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents here on CKNW. So we're going to talk about the personal, the real personal do's and don'ts for dealing with debt. Um, and dealing with debt, it's a tough one, working to pay off debt or struggling to get a handle on mounting debt problems can feel very overwhelming isolating, just crummy on all fronts. Uh, so the cool thing about Blair is he's going to focus exclusively on debt help services. That's sort of describing how Sands & Associates operates. And you're going to share some personal do's and don'ts to help people stay on track as you kind of navigate the challenges with debt you may be facing. And I love this segment, Blair, because it's not about the the what you call, and, and these terms are good too, the on-paper stuff, but it's the off-paper support. Uh, that comes into play when you and your team at SANS sit down and start to work with people who are seeking some help with their debts. 
Exactly, Elaine. That's the approach we're proud to take because, you know, it's not the case you come in for a consultation and we're going through a form, we're ticking off boxes, okay, give me this number, that number, so on and so forth. The way we start our consultation is typically very open-ended. We really want to hear the story. We want to understand the person, the circumstances, what have they been going through, what's led up to this point, uh, you know, what are their objectives for moving forward. Uh, You know, if we don't know that for sure right up front, you know, how can we provide the best possible situation and the best possible solution? And what I often find, too, is people don't expect, um, you know, to find a personal interest, a personal level of compassion when they're coming to confess about their money problems, because a lot of the time, any discussions they've had have been just so terrible. It's either a collection agent that's, you know, coming through the phone, threatening to take everything but their firstborn, or maybe it's a family member that says, oh, wow, how'd you get yourself in so bad? You made so many mistakes, and, you know, they just end up feeling more judged. So we're proud to be able to offer a very safe space where, you know, I can't say that we've heard everyone's story before. We haven't, but we can definitely, you know, see a lot of parallels, a lot of situations in our experience in the past that allows us to give people hope um, that the path that they're on is actually going to be a good one. And, you know, tomorrow they're debt-free. Uh, it's going to be a whole lot better than yesterday when they had no idea what they were going to do. So, and one of the, you know, oh, yeah, ahead, sorry, ahead. I was just going to say, one of the things that I know that you guys rely on at SANS is this BC Consumer Debt Study, where you've talked to mm-hmm. so many people, and they've given you so much good information uh, that you can then share with folks when they're coming in your door. Yeah, it's the largest single piece of research focused only on people in BC who file bankruptcies or proposals, and we do it every year. We're coming into our eighth year coming up here in 2021, um, and it helps us understand exactly, you know, what situation and what's, what's life like for people when they come to us, and, you know, what causes people to reach out for help, and what it generally is, overwhelming stress the number one sign that led people to realize their debts were becoming a problem. And when we go a little bit deeper, it's such significant proportions of people who are just having a very difficult time. Three in four respondents said debt stress caused anxiety or depression. Uh, More than 70% felt helpless or hopeless. Uh, Over a third said they started to alienate themselves from friends and family. Sometimes there's even substance abuse that can be triggered by this. And what's completely sobering for us and letting us know exactly how important what we do is, uh, as much as one in six people that have responded to our survey and, you know, decided to be very, very honest and straightforward with us have said they contemplated suicide as a solution to their financial problems. So it's completely all-encompassing and sometimes people really feel the world closing in with their debts and it doesn't have to feel that way. Yeah, that isolation really plays a role in this kind of uh, this kind of anxiety and, and fear about it. So, Blair, on that note, can you take us through a couple of the do's and don'ts to help mm-hmm. folks... Sure. First one is do be honest with yourself. So really ask yourself, are you feeling confident or are you feeling concerned about your debts and your overall finances? Are you spending a lot of time thinking about your debts, taking up a lot of your mental capacity? Um, you know, quite often, if you think you have a debt problem, you really do. So if you're just feeling uncertain about things, it's time to reach out, at least have a conversation. Very few people that reach out to us say, there's nothing we can do for you, and you know, you, you have wasted your time. No, you're going to get something out of the conversation, at least something that's going to put you on a good path to either help yourself or somebody else. But if you're feeling the anxiety, it's time to reach out for help. And again, that shame comes up to play for people. Yeah, and that's a don't. It's don't get trapped by self-blame or feeling bad about them, about yourself. A lot of people blame themselves. They feel deeply ashamed. You know, we know generally people are very honest. We want to honor our obligations. And sometimes things completely out of your control have put you in a situation that you're just not able to do so. You know, sometimes life has other plans, so to speak. And it's how you react to those other plans can really determine what your future looks like. 
I just want to point out, too, that if you already know or feel that you've got uh, to take some action on your debt situation, I'm just going to throw in the phone number quickly, 1-800-661-3030. And that's for Sands and Associates to help you get started. So what are the other don'ts you want to make sure that folks pay attention to? Yeah, a big don't, and this is good for life, but don't assume, you know, don't make mm-hmm. assumptions about your debt solutions because a lot of people, they think they know something. They think maybe a well-meaning friend, even a financial planner or advisor might have told them something. I've heard everything from you can't get forgiveness for CRA debt to bankruptcy is only possible if you're in default. Um, you know, you've got to pay this person back no matter what. You can't go bankrupt on this versus that. So a lot of folks, they really think there's no options for them because they've just assumed away um, a solution that is actually out there, but they don't investigate it enough. So definitely don't make assumptions. Make sure you get the facts. It must be challenging for folks to really take stock of their situation. It's a really good thing, but I bet it's challenging. Well, and it's, it's a really important thing to do, but it can be very difficult. And sometimes the longer you let things go, the more intimidating it can be. So, um, you know, we have people coming into our office. They had stacks of mail sometimes, you know, a year's worth of statements. And as that stack just got higher and higher, their anxiety level got higher and higher. And I could just see as we're tearing through the envelopes together, okay, now we've got it out in the open. Now we can deal with it. But, you know, if you're just burying your head in the sand, you know, it feels good in the short term, but eventually you just know you're not dealing with the problem. So you've really got, as we say, to take stock, even just on a sheet of paper, writing down, here's who I think I owe, here's how much, here's what I'm able to pay, you know, bringing that to our first consultation will give us just about what we need to figure out what you can do. And often so so it happens for folks that they're in such a vulnerable, anxious state, uh, they don't often know who exactly to turn to. And I just want to really, let's talk about why it's so important to see a licensed insolvency trustee when you're in this uh, state of mind. Yeah, you've got to understand that only a licensed insolvency trustee has the tools, the expertise, uh, you know, the know-how to get you to debt-free. So if you start to Google about, you know, debt advisors, debt consultants, debt help, you'll find there's 150 different people that might claim to do what a licensed insolvency trustee can do, but only an LIT can actually implement either a personal bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. And what really gets me sometimes is that some advisors will charge people, sometimes it's three, four, even $5,000, to eventually send them to a licensed insolvency trustee where they could have came there right from the start, had a consultation, worked out their own plan. And then sometimes the advisors that send on to a licensed insolvency trustee, they'll say, well, you still need me along the way. I'm going to give you coaching. I'll help you rebuild your credit. And the person ends up paying this advisor for months or years into the future. Um, So definitely, again, do all your investigations, understand who's out there, but be guided by the idea that only Industry Canada has licensed insolvency trustees to administer bankruptcies and proposals. It costs nothing to meet with us. So be very, very careful if you're meeting with somebody who's not an LIT. Okay. And in the last minute or two that we've got, can you share some do's and don'ts that folks should just sort of keep in mind as they work through their plan to pay off debt in that research mode? Well, I think one good one is to take a break from using credit if you can. So sometimes, you know, one of the best things to do is just, you know, whether you put the cards in the freezer, put them on ice or whatever, and especially if you're doing a consumer proposal or a personal bankruptcy, you're going to have to live without credit at least for a period of time. So it's worthwhile to even just take a month off from credit, just say, I'm just going to roll with cash this this month, I'm going to pay checks or whatever, and just see, are you actually able to meet all of your obligations? Does your budget work? In some cases, the budget is actually broken, and it's not the fact that credit's getting out of hand, it's the fact that every month there's $500 more expenses than there is income and credit's been able to mask that because the balances just keep growing. So definitely take a break from credit for even a short term to really look at your budget in detail. And what about those financial literacy skills that you have talked about before? 
And that's so important, Elaine. You know, people feel so much more in control when they know the rules of the game. They know exactly what can and should happen. Um, and if you do a, a, a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, a key component of that is two financial counseling sessions where we talk to you about rebuilding your credit, trying to avoid a similar situation in the future. So there's so many great resources that are out there. The Financial Consumer Agency of Canada has great online resources as well. So definitely worth checking into to see how much you can learn. And this, of course, folks, is all about giving you some good information so you can move forward with your life without debt if that's something that's hanging over you. Sands and Associates qualified team of caring experts are available to sit down with you and talk this through. You can book your free non-judgmental debt consolidation uh, consultation rather session to get started. 1-800-661-3030 toll free or visit sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Talking about borrowing as a debt solution, uh, lots of things to consider. Debt consolidation loans, pretty popular solution uh, that a lot of people think about when they want a solution to streamline multiple debts. So there's some benefits and help resolve some of the aspects of the common debt management challenges, but they aren't ideal in every situation, and that's why this segment's a good one. So Blair is going to take us through some key consideration when it comes to borrowing and non-borrowing solutions if consolidating your debt is something you want to do. So, Blair, can you start by kind of outlining some of the basic points of that lender-based debt consolidation option that folks are sometimes looking at? Sure, Elaine. You know, when most people say debt consolidation, they're really referring to a debt consolidation loan, which is a pretty basic concept. You're going to borrow a lump sum amount from one lender, and you're going to pay off or deal with multiple other debts. So the idea, the benefits in mind of this is you're going to have fewer payments to juggle. So things are going to be a little bit more simple and easy to keep track of things. Ideally, you're going to free up some cash flow because the whole point of consolidating is that the new lender should be able to give you a lower interest rate than what you're already paying or else you know, there wouldn't be much point in consolidating. Um, and then you'll also should have a timeline on when your debt will be paid off. Now, there's a number of different ways that you can consolidate the debt if you're going to be borrowing to do so. The typical ones, you know, your typical debt consolidation loan is where I've just described. You approach the bank. You say, I owe these five credit cards. I'd like to borrow from you. Let's pay off the credit cards, and I will pay you back. That's a very traditional type of consolidation loan. Um, a home equity loan is becoming more and more common as real estate values continue to increase, and that can be sometimes called a second mortgage or refinancing your mortgage. And with that, you're just borrowing more money against your house, um, um, ideally paying a much lower interest rate and paying off some high interest debt. Um, sometimes consolidation can take the form of a line of credit uh, or an overdraft. Um, so again, just another way of borrowing a different mechanism. Uh, and then finally, sometimes with credit cards, you can consolidate using a balance transfer. Um, often this is your more expensive or most expensive option because there's usually transaction fees and interest costs that are typically higher than other options. But as you can see, there's a number of different ways you can try to borrow to consolidate your debts. Okay, so all of that sounds pretty good, but I know from talking to you about this before, there are some pretty common challenges that folks run into with consolidation loans or financing. So what are the things that people should consider before committing to that consolidation loan? 
Right. You know, the first thing is just about everyone that I've ever met with when I ask, okay, what have you tried so far? Well, I tried to consolidate. Okay. And banks said no, right? Yeah, unfortunately. Even with perfect credit, banks said no, right? Yeah, unfortunately. And the challenge is the consolidations are very difficult to qualify, and especially at a rate that's going to make them compelling. If you think about it intuitively, it kind of makes sense. You're approaching the bank saying you're in a risky financial situation, and you want the bank to risk, the new bank to risk their money to pay off all of your old debt. You know, what's their assurance that you're going to be able to pay off the new bank and they're going to get all of their money back? They've just paid out. So what some lenders will do is if they will advance some money to you, it could be at very high interest rates. Uh, You've got to be careful, too, if you're looking online and not one of the major banks. Sometimes what you're applying for is a consolidation loan. It's actually just a lead generation site. They're going to be selling your information to a number of folks. um, And then, you know, you may or may not be able to be approved, but it's typically not going to be at a very good rate. So I would generally recommend, you know, start with the big banks. And, you know, if you've got solid credit and some assets to pledge and you're comfortable doing so, you might be approved. But the vast majority of people that I see, they start with their bank and they're rather shocked that even with great credit, they're not able to get approved to do a consolidation loan. What happens to folks who who do out of the few that actually get a, a consolidation loan? What kinds of, I don't know, assurances do they have to have to give the, the bank? Well, and that can be a really critical thing, Elaine, because it's very few people will get a consolidation loan if the bank has concerns unless they're willing to give some, as we've said, extra assurances to the bank that they will recover their money. And that often takes one of two forms. Uh, one is a co-signer or a co-borrower. So the bank says, oh, sure, you know, we'll take a risk on you, but we'd like someone else to also be responsible there. And what a lot of people don't understand is, you know, maybe they go to a family member or a friend and they say, you know, this is never going to be triggered. You know, don't worry about it. And if it is triggered, you know, at most it's 50-50. You know, your exposure is going to be half of what I've borrowed, and that's just not the case at all. So I meet with some people where they've done a debt consolidation loan. You know, it hasn't worked out to their benefit. They're not able to pay it off, and they really need to file a personal bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. But because they've got a guarantor on that debt, you know, it might be a family member or a friend, you know, I can help them legally. They're not going to be responsible for this anymore, but they know morally their friend is now going to be on the hook, and they just feel pretty bad leaving someone in that situation that didn't contemplate it. So if the only only way you can qualify for a consolidation loan is by getting a co-signer or a co-borrower or by pledging an asset, which is the other way. Sometimes, yeah, we'll consolidate your debt, but, you know, give us some security over your car or your house or something like those along those lines. So if, if either of those things are your only options to consolidate, I definitely recommend you explore a bunch of other options before you start thinking about pledging assets or giving a co-signer. Okay, I just want to take a moment too uh, to Sabler. Uh, if this information is overwhelming uh, to folks who are listening, make it easier on yourself. Book that appointment with Sands and Associates. Get the answers you're looking for. One eight hundred six six one thirty thirty. Do you want to talk about the other personal pitfalls with with consolidation, or where do you want to go with this? Because there's so much to cover, and we've yeah, only we got about so three much, minutes. So little time. I know we've all got great yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, let's just touch a little bit more on one final pitfall, which is just the cost of doing a consolidation. Then let's talk about some other options that you don't need to borrow about. So okay. just the final pitfall here is just even if you are approved, just make sure you can afford the consolidation. So sometimes people are turned down by the big banks. They end up going to, you know, lenders that sound a lot like payday lenders, and it's a 40% interest rate. It's ridiculous charges. So just be careful that the consolidation is actually going to solve your problem, going to move you ahead. It's not going to be an unaffordable payment that, you know, is just going to fail a couple months down the road. Excellent. Okay, so key points of consolidation options that don't require to you uh, that money needs to be borrowed in order for you to pay this thing off. 
yeah, there's two great options that are out there. One, I think, is far superior to the other, and I'll tell you why. But two things people can consider if they need to consolidate their debt and they don't want to borrow money to do so. One is called a credit counseling debt management plan. So if you go look online or you'll see various advertisements for credit counselors, what they're able to do, because they're essentially paid by your creditors as collection agents, is they can negotiate an interest freeze on all of your debts. Now, not any of your government debt or student loans, but any typical bank debt with a credit counselor, they'd be able to say, okay, you owe $20,000. Let's get you to pay back that full $20,000 over five years. We're going to charge you a small fee on top of it, but look what you saved in the interest. Doesn't this make a whole lot of sense? And a lot of times you say, well, yeah, this is far better than what I'm doing. I'm going to save money. I can afford to pay everything back. It's going to take five years. There's a little hit to my credit because I've, I've compromised on the interest, but this sounds pretty good. And I agree, it does sound pretty good, but there is generally a better option for people to consider, and that's called a consumer proposal, and that's what we do here at Sands & Associates. So I definitely encourage people to you know, investigate all of their options, but if you stack up a credit counseling debt management plan against a consumer proposal, you'll see there's some pretty significant advantages with the consumer proposal, the main one being that a consumer proposal actually reduces your debt. So where we talked about in the credit counseling plan, you've got to pay back the full $20,000. A consumer proposal, because it's with a trustee who uses the law it's a matter of what can you afford to pay back it might be half of that debt it might be a third of that debt you know typically on twenty thousand dollars maybe a thirty percent repayment would be six thousand dollars so a difference quite significantly compared to a credit counseling plan and as soon as you've paid off that reduced balance in a consumer proposal the debt is fully discharged there's no one coming after you for the other half or the other thirty percent or whatever so a consumer proposal reduces the debt stops the interest and it can include all all debts, including government debts and student loans. So it's a more powerful option and definitely worthwhile anyone considering, whether they're considering consolidating, whether it's borrowing or non-borrowing, make sure a consumer proposal is one of those stones that you do overturn to see if there's something there for you. And the best thing about Sands & Associates is you can learn more about the consumer proposals, debt consolidation, as well as the other options in order to deal with your debt. Uh, Sands & Associates has a very, very friendly team. They have offices all over British Columbia. They are debt smart with heart, and it's free confidential debt consultations are available in person or remotely, so, and you can book easily. Go to the website sands-trustee.com or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.